Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly delve into the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and we're now just over two weeks away from the Scottish Parliament elections. Over the past week or so, the parties have been releasing their manifestos, with the SNP committed to hold a second independence referendum, as well as building 100,000 new homes across Scotland by 2032. The Tories have set out plans to recruit an extra 3,000 teachers, while the Lib Dems more funding for mental health services and a series of reforms at Holyrood to better hold the next Scottish Government to account. The Greens, who also want a second independence referendum, have set out what they call a green economic recovery from the pandemic. The Labour Manifesto is due to be published later this week, but one of the proposals uh, is likely to be for fan ownership of football clubs following controversy over the proposed new European Super League. On this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with Peter Krikant, a drugs campaigner who's standing as an independent candidate. But first, I'm joined by Andrew Learmans to discuss what's been happening on the campaign trail. Andrew, it feels like the campaign so far has been a little lacklustre. How much do you think that's due to the pandemic? I mean, I, that's, that's a good question. I don't know if I would use the word lacklustre. I mean, I think I think it's been more subdued than lacklustre, if, if you can sort of... You know, I don't know if we can. There's a difference there, isn't there? There's a difference. I, I think it's, you know, um, certainly as a journalist, normally during election campaigns, we'd be out and about, we'd be talking to people, which is one of the best things about election campaigns is getting to talk to people, getting to talk to the candidates, getting to talk to, you know, the, the, the incumbents and the, the no hopers and going to the big events and the manifesto launches. And obviously, we're not really getting to do that this time. We're all doing it from the comfort of our uh, of our Zooms. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think it's certainly some of the manifestos like a little just feel that little bit smaller, a little more subdued and, and maybe that little more lacklustre than, than before. Um, what's been interesting this week, uh, uh, for the, just over the last week or so, is that we've uh, the rules and regulations around campaigning have, have changed, have relaxed ever so slightly, which now means that parties and candidates can go and knock on your door and ask you how you're voting and try and right. sort of convince you on the doorstep. I, I, I spoke to a couple of politicians about this yesterday just to see how it had gone for them. And, and they were both saying that they were quite hesitant, that even though they could do that, they were both quite hesitant about sending out activists to go and knock on doors. Because, first of all, they, they didn't really, you know, felt like it might put some pressure on their activists going to do something they were uncomfortable with, but also because they didn't know how voters would react to someone stranger knocking on the door going, how are you voting in two weeks' time? But they both said that they had done that they kind of got over that and they said their activists do knock on the doors and actually the response had been incredible and their activists came back all, all enthused so so perhaps you know that might sort of change things a little bit as we as we sort of get more interaction with our candidates and with our parties and our campaigners um that might make things just feel a little bit closer a little bit more human so you're saying that you're saying that during the pandemic people are so starved of social interaction that they're actually happy to see a politician knock at their front door <laughs> Well, you know, this is the thing. I mean, 
I, I, I would always be very polite if a politician knocked at my door. Of course I would. Uh, always polite when anyone knocks at my door. I mean, no one ever knocks at my door. That's not an invitation, by the way. I don't, you know, random <laughs> listeners of the Hollywood podcast coming, just knocking on my door. I mean, obviously they'd be very welcome to it. I'd, I'd be very polite to them. But I'd, I'd, uh, I'd not encourage it. Um, but you no, know, I think I think it is. And it's interesting talking to talking to actual candidates. So I did this for the, the magazine about a month back, talking to candidates. I was kind of surprised by how much they all look forward to going around knocking on doors and talking to voters um for them it's a, it's a hugely important part of the the process yeah. not so much in that they're going to go around sort of convincing voters one by one but it kind of gives them you know it means when they stand up at hustings and going well i've been talking to voters on the doorstep i'm being told this it kind of gives them that sort of that that, that authenticity if that makes sense um so and also just about finding about local issues and, and, and all that sort of stuff because as with all campaigns they're generally fought nationally aren't they and this campaign is very much being fought in the constitution but actually if you come around my bin and talk to my neighbors they're probably going to want to talk to you about the blue bins and you know the, the potholes and this, yeah. i'm pretty sure it's the same in almost every constituency in scotland yeah um last last week we had the the second of the leader leaders debates and the sdv leaders debate um do you think there was a, a a standout winner from that i mean I, yeah yeah I, I think i think again it's tricky with the the debates the leaders debates um you know it, de- it depends how you judge a winner is is i suppose is, is what each of the candidates was trying to achieve so there were i think some notable moments some standout moments of the debate for me one of the, the key moments was right very early on with nicola sturgeon in her opening statement but she pretty much just, you know, acknowledged the fact that she was the only person standing on that stage who is trying to be first minister. She's the only person who says, I want to lead the next government. I want my party to be the next government. Everyone else is, is kind of fighting to be the opposition. Um, and that's, I, 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 that's you know, I, it's interesting, isn't it? We're, we're, the race for this election really is for the race for second place. I'm sure there are very clever strategists and very clever people standing behind um, Douglas Ross and, and Anna Sauer going, let's be honest with the people, the polls show we're not going to perform the next government, so let's not even pretend, try and pretend that we are, but it does feel like it sort of maybe undermines their case a little bit when they go, yeah. you know, the, 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 the SNP's record in government has been atrocious, but we don't want to replace them, however, we're not going to replace them. But, you know, so, so that for me was the, a key moment. I, I think the other key moment, um, or, you know, Douglas Ross had his life made very uncomfortable at some point by um, Patrick Harvey from the Greens when he was sort of quizzed on you know, previous comments about travellers and the travelling community. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon uh, had her life made quite uncomfortable by Douglas Ross when the Scottish government's record on drug death, or Scotland's horrific drug death rate was raised. I, I think we've got a, a clip of that. Here. Drug deaths in Scotland have doubled in the time you've been First Minister. Why did you allow a drug rehabilitation facility in your own constituency to close two years ago? Um, I think we took our eye off the ball uh, on drug deaths and I've said as much to the Scottish Parliament. I've said uh, set out what we will do to try to turn that around. I uh, set out at the start of this year a £250 million investment programme to build up rehabilitation services, including re, uh, residential rehabilitation, to make sure we give more support to community services, uh, to make sure that we provide faster access to treatment. And we have a task force working on all of that. I and think you know it's that's important. funding we ask for as Scottish Conservatives, and I welcome look, that funding, I, but it doesn't take back I think a single important. life that's already I, been lost. I've, and I asked a very specific question about your constituency, which you failed to answer. 
So just just how bad is the problem of drug deaths in Scotland, uh, Andrew? And what are the various parties proposing to fix it? I mean, it's it's genuinely awful, Chris. It's it's, it's a real uh, horrific figure, and it's just it's one of those figures that's been getting worse and worse every year for 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 quite some time now. I think so. The the latest figures we have go back to 2019. Uh, there were 1,264 deaths in 2019. That was up six percent on the previous year. Um, you know, uh, and according to the, the the National Records of Scotland, our, our drug death rate is higher than those reported for all the other EU countries, and it is in fact uh, approximately three and a half times that of the UK uh, as a whole. Um, uh, we'd always, I think, in previous years, have said, you know, there was such a thing as an aging cohort. These are all sort of yeah. the train spotting generation. We called them, you know, the guys from the uh, who in the 80s and who suffered because of deindustrialization, but. But what was really upsetting, what was really staggering from the, the 2019 figures is that, you know, you know the over two thirds were, were guys who were aged between 35 and 54. So not that aging cohort. So it's been a real problem. And I, I think, you know, we saw the, the government um, really uh, shamed by those figures when they came out just in December last year. Uh, Joe Fitzpatrick, who was the, the public health minister, uh, was sacked, uh, you know, um, and, uh, a new minister to deal specifically with drug deaths uh, was appointed Angela Constance. So um, it's, uh, as you can imagine, it's been a key focus in quite a lot of the manifestos. Um, you know, the SNP have said they're going to sort of put towards uh, £250 million pounds, um, over the lifetime of the next parliament to support a range of community-based interventions as well as rehabs and uh, other treatments. I think, you know, one consensus is certainly in the, in the SNP manifesto and the Lib Dem manifesto uh, um, and the Green manifesto is about sort of taking drugs away from the criminal justice system and making it much more of a public health issue as well. Um, the Conservatives, are, again, they're talking about sort of focusing more on rehab beds and sort of putting more money towards uh, rehab beds and, and things like that. Um, uh, there's also some consensus between the parties, uh, certainly between uh, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats uh, and the Greens. We've not seen the Labour Manifesto yet, as you, as you said earlier on, over the uh, drug consumption rooms, um, which is effectively nude, where drug users can go and they can take their uh, the drugs uh, in, a, in a safe way. Uh, um, you know, in a supervised manner as well. Um, you know, the Scottish government have been keen to uh, introduce these for a while, but they've always said that they can't because the uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act is reserved to, to Westminster and the Conservative government down there have absolutely no uh, uh, no real interest in, in uh, reforming or, or changing the, 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 the drugs laws there. Um, some arguments here that the Scottish government could have gone much further than they have done. Um, I think that's been discussed on the, the podcast today with, with, with Peter Kraken, who you know has been running uh, what is in effect a, a, a drug consumption room in, on the streets of Glasgow. Um, and, uh, we'll hear from him later. And Andrew, we finally had it confirmed uh, by uh, Tory leader Douglas Ross that Prime Minister Boris Johnson won't be joining him on the campaign trail. Do you think that's an admittance that the Prime Minister's presence could do more harm than good? I think that's how it's being read, Chris, absolutely. That, you know, Douglas Ross is desperate to try and take some of these these sort of anti-independence voters away from Labour. But he knows that maybe Boris Johnson coming up to Scotland would be... Uh, would be off-putting. So number 10 have said it's because of the pandemic. They can't come up because of the coronavirus. 
However, he has been travelling to constituencies in England where they have local elections and to the Hartlepool by-election. And he was up here at the earlier on in this year when you know, the, the coronavirus infection rates were, were far, far higher. Um, so it's, it's yeah, apparently Douglas Ross and, and Boris Johnson spoke on Sunday night and they agreed that he would not come. So um, it's a bit of a change from, from, from I think, uh, earlier this year when he said wild horses wouldn't stop him from campaigning for Douglas Ross. So with the issue of Scotland's drug deaths front and centre of the election debate, Holyrood editor Mandy Rose caught up with Peter Crichton, a drugs campaigner who is standing as an independent candidate in May's elections. So Peter, this week, as the manifestos have started coming out and obviously the politicians are being interviewed, the First Minister was interviewed and asked about the really the, the tragedy of drug deaths. And she's basically said, we took our eye off the ball. I mean, for somebody like you that has gone through that whole journey of drug misuse, prison, homelessness, pioneering work with uh, drug users, and now standing to be a politician yourself, taking your eye off the ball? Is that a good enough excuse? Yeah, I think it was uh, certainly a misplaced comment to to say taking your eye off the ball when you're talking about thousands upon thousands of people that have died over the last 14 years while the SNP have been in power. You know, we, we've seen a 160% increase in drug deaths in, in the last 14 years. Um, for me, that's not just taking your eye off the ball. That's, that's a complete... Um, you know, lack of response to the continuous increases year upon year upon year, you know, I, and also, you know, the, the fact that the budgets were cut in 2016 following a record de death year in 2015, um, you know, there has to be more than we've took our eye off the ball. There has to be, a, I am, you know, deeply sorry that we have completely failed Thousands of families in Scotland and thousands upon thousands of people have lost their lives unnecessarily. Um, it, it was a bit of a shocking comment, to be honest. And I, and I think Nicola Sturgeon herself would probably look back and think, you know, why did I say that? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it gives you a lesson <laughs> before you go into it all. I mean, I, I very flippantly listed um, your journey and we'll, we'll come back onto your journey because I want to hear more about it but mm. I suppose on that issue of politicians and how they've reacted to drug issues in Scotland over the last well you and I were talking earlier 30 odd years that we've both been involved in different ways perhaps yeah. but I guess all politicians have failed and one of the things I've always wondered is is it just because actually politicians there, there aren't really votes in drug misusers well, I think previously there hasn't been Monday, and I think that's been one of the issues, you know, that, that the the sort of 50 years old now Misuse of Drugs Act, and even before the Misuse of Drugs Act, the narrative has always been fed to us that drugs are bad, um, and therefore people that take drugs are bad. And what we, what we now know is that most people who use substances problematically do come from very traumatic upbringings, you know, adverse childhood experiences, um, a lot of ex-forces, you know, PTSD, that leads to problematic alcohol and substance mis misuse. 
Um, and we're starting to see this new narrative in society now, you know, that people are starting to realise that actually um, people need support and help. This is a health issue, you know, and it's not something that should be getting dealt with through the criminal justice system. And I think that's becoming more apparent in Scotland, even uh, the, than the rest of the UK. You know, I think we still have a UK government which are still pushing that same narrative backed by ultimately UK Labour as well. You know, the, the, both the Tories and Labour think that what's happening just now with drug policy is about right. And, you know, the, the, the rest of the UK have a massive problem as well. They sit th third in the charts. Um, for drug-related deaths in the EU, with if you look at the whole of the UK, an average of 16 people every single day are dying from a preventable drug death. It's outrageous, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, if it was 16 people a day that were dying coming from the most affluent areas of the UK, that certainly have been a different response. And I think, you know, although the Scottish government have to take responsibility for the complete failure when it comes to actually treating this as a health issue, because health is fully devolved, remember, policing and crime is fully devolved. So it's, a lot of this falls at the hands of the Scottish government. But also, in some respects, if we wanted to go down the routes of countries like Portugal, which have seen dramatic turnarounds and drug-related deaths, you know, and dramatic decreases in things like HIV and hepatitis C. We currently still don't have the ability to do that because the Misuse of Drugs Act is not devolved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking back um, just before I thought about us doing this interview. I did a social work placement in Hunter's Crescent in Perth back in 1983. I think it was. Mm. It might have been 82, actually. And at that point, kids were all starting to sniff glue. Yeah. And even then, people understood that it was basically about self-medication. It yeah. was about, I can remember a more senior social worker saying to me, if you had to live like this, what do you think you would do to escape? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's always been linked to, you know, that, but we've just not, we've just not had the, the you know, the knowledge around it and how to deal with that, you know, being informed about trauma and how to implement proper so social psychological care up until um, more recent years, you know, I mean, uh, certainly in the, the 80s and 90s as well, you know, that children could be in abusive households and, and, you know, getting abused going to school as well. I mean, that's my own experience, you know, like I, I've seen a lot of, you know, upset, a lot of alcohol and drugs in my home. And then I went to school and was abused off of adults in school. You know, at five years old, my report card said that I was quarrelsome and unhappy and um, needed to mature a bit. At five, <laughs> five years old. I mean, I yeah, pull your socks up, Peter, for God's sake. I don't, I know, I don't, I don't know if you've seen it, Mandy, but I, I got my P1 to P7 report cards from my mum, who's kept all that stuff, and I posted my P1, a picture of my P1 report card. Literally, a five-year-old. He is unhappy. He's quarrelsome, and he needs to mature a bit. You know, can you imagine? And today, if that was given to any adult, or any parent as a report card, I mean, if my Five year, I've got a five year old who I've just dropped at school this morning. If if he got a report like that, I would be taking him out of that school and he wouldn't be going back. You know. I suppose your worry is that those things could still be said of five year olds, couldn't they? And people might not pick up the messages. Yeah, although I think what what we're seeing now, certainly in in schools, is that that 
you know, teachers are much more informed, you know, and if a, if a five-year-old's coming into school and he, he seems to be constantly unhappy, he seems to be argumentative and, you know, um, you know, showing those sorts of signs of upset, I think a teacher nowadays would, I, I would hope, would be much more informed to, you know, talk to the parents and try and find out what was going on. I mean, by the time I got to high school, I had been through the ringer at school. You know, I, I obviously had, you know, a lot of emotional stuff going on at home. My parents split up, you know, there were a lot of arguments, there was violence, there was drugs. And then I get to school, this place where it should be a place of safety, you know, and I'm getting locked in cupboards, you know, literally getting locked in cupboards by teachers, you know, um, and this is in high school. So, you know, by the time we get to, into the late 80s, that is, um, you know, and, and by the you know the nineties, I was I was gone. You know, I was already um, by the time I, I got to fifteen, sixteen. You know, I was already firmly addicted to a, a, a wide range of substances. You know, not in school, and you know, just a you know a, a complete car crash waiting to happen. You know, I, I'm very lucky that I didn't cause any anybody any serious injuries or end up dead myself. You know, because by the time I was by the time I got to 16, you know, I had a, a serious um, suicide, a serious attempt to take my own life. I want to go over a couple of things there, but apart from anything, I mean, I guess you were pretty angry as well at that point. I was, yeah. I mean, anger, frustration, um, you know, I suppose I was just bewildered by everything that was going on around me. You know, I was an only child, so I, I, again, you know, I didn't have any, like, sort of siblings that, that, that you know you, sometimes I think siblings can band together and you know they can talk to each other I, I didn't have that you know so and, and of course growing up in the 80s and, and, and a council estate you know where everybody everybody around us was working class you know my dad was a, a worked down the mines until they closed in 1982 here in uh, Keneal Colliery and Bones and you know my mum was a uh, in the Wrangler Sloan factory, you know, nobody spoke about how they felt, you know, you wouldn't go round to your mate's house and say, you know, I, you know I'm feeling really emotional and upset today, you know, like, it just wasn't like that, you know, that's not the, the environment that, that I grew up in and, you know, I think now uh, looking at the relationship with my own nine-year-old and five-year-old, you know, it's, it's always about how do you feel, you know, tell us what's going on for you and, and obviously constantly being told that you know they're loved and that they matter well that's what i was going to ask you so when the teacher wrote in that your report card those things about you what do you think should have happened when you took that report card home well I, yeah i don't i don't really know i think it's again it's the age of the time that we lived in you know that would have been 1981 um, you know, I don't think there was a lot of stuff going on there then in terms of, um, you know, being informed about about trauma or parents really being engaged in, in their, their schooling or, or, or children's upbringings. You know, it's just a different time. You know, obviously, if, if that happened today, I think, you know, I, I, if I got any sorts of reports like that, I would straight away be asked the teacher, you know, What's, what's, what do you think is happening here? You know, has there, has there been constant signs of this type of uh, behaviour? Um, you know, because I think any any sort of behaviour from a child like that is, is uh, you know, a, a call that they, they need to be heard in some sort of way. 
So what did you get? A clip round the ear? <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at that sort of age, you know, I, I remember going into, into the house one day and, and I was around about that same sort of age, five, six, and I was crying, that, you know, greeting, as we call it. I was crying that, uh, you know, I'd been in a fight and got battered. And I, I remember it vividly. I got pulled by the, the hair of my head, took me to the door, the front door of my, my house thrown into the garden by the hair and got told you better go and bar him back because you're not coming back you better not be coming back in this house greeting again because you go barred you know and it was that sort of attitude of you know fight or flight um you know that's that's kind of how it was it was always about sticking up for yourself you know big boys don't cry we don't show emotion you know again that was sort of the attitude i mean still you hear that today you know, you was still... that your dad, Peter? Uh, my mum. Oh no! Right. <laughs> <My mom>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, uh, but that's that's the thing, though, Mandy. That that's how it was. You know that uh, I think it, I wasn't I wasn't um, sitting out from the crowd then. You know, it was like a, a small working class council estate. You know that that's how it was. Everybody was like, stick up for yourself. You know, there was constant fights after school every day. You know, like kids fighting in the playground, you know, I, I go to the, my, my, my local school now to drop my kids off and pick them up and I'd, I'd never see that, you know, like, uh, it was an everyday occurrence in my school growing up. But not everybody got into bother, not everybody took drugs? No, not everybody did, but there, there was certainly quite quite a, a large group of us in the area that I grew up in, you know, I, I think the difference for, for me was that I went on to, you know, make it like a full-time job, you know, like <laughs> it talks about in Trainspotting, you know, by the sort of age, as I say, of 13, 14, I, I was already firmly, you know, a daily user of one substance or another, um, you know, and... and that just became my life for the next, you know, from the age of 11 when I started smoking cannabis to until the age of sort of 23, 24. It was, it was my life every day, more or less. Why did you take drugs, do you think? Well, I suppose at the beginning it was that, you know, being around your friends and, you know, your, your, your peers were all, my peers were all experimenting and, you know, it gave me a chance to escape from the house, you know, like um, by this point my mum and dad were, were, were uh, divorced and um, my mum met a new guy, he wasn't, he was basically, you know, a, a, an abusive person, he sat around drinking all day, never worked, drinking and smoking hash himself and, um, you know, there was a lot of aggression and violence in the house and stuff, so that, that getting out by that point, by the age of 11, 12, you know, it was that chance to just escape. It was like I wasn't getting away from all that. I mean, my mum was out working all the time. She was working all day in the sewing factory and working in pubs all night. And that was basically just to support him, you know, this 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 man that she had met. And obviously at the beginning, it wasn't like that, but I suppose that's that's what happens in abusive relationships. You know, they, they, off, they, they, they don't start. Um, being abusive to begin with, um, but that sort of developed really quickly after he moved into the family house, you know. So, so was there anyone, Peter, saying to you, right, here are the boundaries or don't do that or think about this? I mean, was there any guidance coming from anyone? It's, it's quite, quite 
strange when I look back at it now because by the age of 12 I was out delivering milk um, I was getting up at about 3.30 every morning um, going out six, six days a week delivering milk um, you know I was not really going to school I was sleeping in my friend's shed often instead of going to school you know like I'd be coming home from delivering milk having my breakfast and getting ready as if I was going out to the school and then I'd be going to sleep in my mummy's shed and then coming home and then I'd be working in ice cream vans at night and you know as I say by the age of 12 13 I'm out I'm earning 100 pounds a week maybe 100 pounds plus and all of that money is just to feed my my, my my addictions I've already taken off by that point and I just think it's absolutely crazy you know I look at my oldest and he's only uh, a couple of years away from that and I just think there's no way that you're getting up at 3.30 in the morning to go out and deliver milk uh, but you know that, again it was like in some ways I was like uh, respected you know like oh he's out there earning his own money you know it's like it wasn't a paper round where you get up and go out for half an hour or an hour before school you know it's like um you know, it's full on like working all the time. <laughs> you know? And ice cream vans in those days were selling more than ice cream, weren't they? <laughs> they were, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, there was certainly a few bits and pieces got sold back and forward through the ice cream uh, van. Um, that's a whole other story, probably. A whole other story, but I mean, the, the, the ice cream vans back then were everywhere, you know. And there yeah. was, I remember being in an ice cream van in Grangemouth and again uh, smashed up with baseball bats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, so without it sounding like some kind of dystopian Monty Python sketch, <laughs> um, yeah, what what happened from kind of eleven? I mean, basically, y- you were acting like a grown man, yeah, but you were still a child. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of running my own life by that time. You know, eleven, twelve years old. I was, you know, fully responsible for myself and. Um, like I say, my life was dominated by alcohol and drugs already, you know, at that young age. So um, it was certainly in the post that, you know, things were going to move forward and I was going to go into harder drugs. Although, as I say, though, Mandy, it's a strange one because, you know, a lot of kids around my area, um, you know, were doing the same stuff, experimenting, you know, smoking weed, drinking a little bit. You know, and, and similar ages as well, you know, moving on to 13, 14, getting involved in things like amphetamines and ecstasy. Um, but I was one of, you know, a handful or so that actually went on to take um, heroin. And, and when that came along, that was sort of the, the, the end of everything else for me. You know, my life was fully dominated by that. I stopped taking all other types of drugs um, as soon as I started taking heroin and I started that at 17 um, and that spiraled really quickly. I mean, back then it was still, I mean, you speak about the the mid-80s in terms of how things were placed, but um, even though it was a a few years on from that, it was still um, a really harsh environment to be a heroin addict. You know, the the lack of injecting equipment, as an example, police sitting about outside um, needle exchanges, you know, there was very limited needle exchanges. In those days, when I started injecting heroin, you had to, there was one pharmacy in the whole of Falkirk that did needle exchange, and if you didn't take your three old needles back, you didn't get three new ones. It was that simple. Um, and that was five, four or five miles from where I stayed, so, you know, we, we often shared equipment, and and um, got used over and over and over and uh, sometimes it was to the point I was so blunt that it was like trying to push a pen into your arm 
It was that late 80s, Peter. That would have been uh, 17, so start of the 90s. Right. So HIV was well understood as well by then. It was. I mean, we had the, the massive outbreaks in the, the, the 80s, wasn't it? And, yeah. you know, a lot of people injecting different types of substances then as well. You know, like uh, there was a lot of people injecting what was uh, referred to as jellies, which is essentially yeah. tamazepan and gel, and, but they were they were uh, distributed in, in like a jelly form, so you could withdraw the gel from the middle of the, the, the tablet. Um, a lot of people losing arms and legs because they they would solidify in your veins, and I, and I remember that because you know that was sort of the mid late eighties. And uh, you know, I was I was involved in drugs at that point, but I wasn't involved in inject, injecting drugs. So, by the time it got to the, the early nineties, that's when I when I started. And you know, we were we had a lot of understanding, but things were still placed very different. And like I say, there was there was only one pharmacy in Falkirk, quite a, a large place. You know, the village I come from uh, is about a twentieth. 25 minute bus journey into the town um, so if I wanted to get a clean equipment I would need to make that bus journey both ways to, down to the pharmacy and then you know like I say if you got there without your old equipment you just weren't getting your equipment. When you paint that picture and you tell that story Peter do you think how do you think the teacher that wrote about you when you were five do you think they would have looked at you at that point and said well that's where we knew it was going? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in those days that, that would have been, you know, the attitude. Like, I mean, telling a five-year-old that they need to mature, and I think, you know, moving through report cards and getting going on uh, from, you know, five through to the age of, like, 10, 11, when you're getting into the, the last year of primary school, I think nothing much changed in those report cards, you know. Like, the, the, there was a lot of as capable, but... Um, as disruptive, you know, and needs to mature as uh, oral some, you know, these were the types of ongoing themes all the way through my, my childhood. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think th there could have been some sort of this is this is uh, you know something that we could have predicted. However, given maybe an opportunity or given some different sort of responses to, to, to the way that I was behaving back there and maybe um, you know I could have been given some sort of uh, you know proper social psychological support and counselling and, and the things that I, I really needed you know the things that I, I, I got eventually when I, when I uh, changed direction in life and you know became what I am today which is you know <laughs> And most parts are a responsible member of society, apart from when I'm allegedly um, stopping the police from searching homeless people for drugs. Well, and we'll come on to that change direction because I'm conscious that if we go over your, all your life, we'll we'll be here for quite some time. But yeah. I suppose you know, as a parent and someone that's kind of, I guess, been involved professionally and personally around drug use, I. The one thing that people are always frightened of saying is, I took drugs because actually it was nice. 
Well, I mean, there's that aspect of it as well, Mandy, you know, obviously there's no getting away from it. I mean, when I first took ecstasy, I absolutely loved it, loved the effects of it, you know, and I think that's what we need to look at in terms of decriminalisation for the, the, you know, the bigger, the, the sort of bigger picture, because the World Health Organisation now recognises and acknowledges the fact that 90% of people who use substances do, do so without any problems, you know, and when we look at um, the, the routes that, as an example, Portugal of Tukin and Switzerland of Tukin with the four pillars model, um, you know, we see that criminalising people actually just leads leads them to be more likely to, to then start using problematically. Um, you know, if people are going out to a nightclub and they're, you know, getting like a, a small gram of cocaine uh, and, and it's, it's lasting them for you know, the whole night or maybe even lasting them for that night and then a month later they go back out and they've still got the same, you know, the same little bit left over. If they get, they get uh, caught with that, they get a criminal record, you know, that can impact future employment, etc, etc. I mean, if, if we look all the way back to the, the 1920s and prohibition of alcohol, it didn't work. And what we've learned from, you know, the, the regulation of, of things like tobacco and alcohol, you know, eventually in society, we'll have to take those learnings and put them into, you know, other types of um, drugs. You know, because alcohol and tobacco are just drugs, you know, and, and I'm not saying that we should regulate substances and we should, you know, advertise them on uh, football, <laughs> football um, shops, you know, like we did with alcohol and, and like we did with tobacco. But what we, we, we have learned is that probably properly regulated, they can be controlled. We can take that out of the hands of the criminal markets and people won't die from these uh, unregulated substances and that's what ha often happens you know the um the the, the street valium as an example you know we, we don't know what's in them we've got no no idea from one batch to the next um, people can go and buy a batch they can take 20 they can be fine the next day they can go back to the same dealer buy another batch take 20 and die and, and that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, over the years, over those 30-odd years that we've been talking about, attitudes towards drugs have gone from prohibition, get off them, recover from them, um, to where we are now, where there, you, there is almost an acceptance that, yeah, that everybody, almost, may try drugs at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose, I don't know if it's everybody, but it's certainly, you know, there's a there's a, a large proportion of society at some point experiments with one type of, which, which, which is now currently classed as a legal substance. You know, of course, if we look at alcohol and tobacco, you know, I, I think everybody at some point does, does uh, try but if you add those substances in, but essentially that's what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, even people like Michael Gove, kind of, you know, even. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The elite, the elite eater, eating uh, establishment, you know, they're, they're quite open about their uh, recreational drug use, uh, which makes it absolutely insane that yep. the UK government still have no plans at all and, and backed by the UK Labour Party to reform drug policy. 
So, so let's take your journey on then a bit further. So you've painted this picture now where we've got this teenager who's taking heroin um, and that's basically become your job, trying to get the money to get that. What what happened? So uh, by that point, uh, by well, very quickly after taking heroin, I ended up uh, losing my job. I think it was working at the point when I started taking it. And, and then I, you know, sold everything I had. I started stealing, you know, shoplifting mainly. And then I stole from my father. And I was in the the, the, the Falkirk Herald, the local paper. And I think the, the headline was local junkie. It was the Falkirk Sheriff Court round up in the paper. The local junkie breaks into father's house, something along those lines. Um, you know, and that, that's how, how the reporting was on on uh, heroin addiction back then, you know, and, and that was over 25 years ago now. And what I did was I just got on the, the first bus to Glasgow and then the first bus from Glasgow to uh, wherever uh, and it happened to be Birmingham. Um, so I ended up in Birmingham for three years. Um, I suppose that's where I talk about the, the worst part of my using because, you know, I ended up getting involved in crack cocaine, uh, more or less as soon as I got off the bus. Um, first person that I spoke to to try and score um, some heroin, you know, went to a crack house, started taking crack, and that, that was three years of um, a lot of street homelessness, sleeping rough. Um, all my income was through begging at that point, and um, sometime in and out of hostels. I, I mean, I had a shop tenancy for about four months that tenancy lasted, but the, uh, I was uh, removed from that tenancy because of you know people coming and going and there was a lot of drug taking and some drugs being sold from the premises as well. So um yeah, so it was it was three years of absolute chaos down there. Um and yeah, I mean from there I, I was lucky, you know, I was I was one of the lucky ones, you know, I got an opportunity to go to um well, two different rehabs. The first one for me wasn't really beneficial. It was a big house and, you know, in the middle of nowhere, um, where it was like an enforced route that I had to hide by. You know, I got there and I, right away I felt like the odd one out. You know, it was called the Princess Diana Treatment Centre for Drug and Alcoholism. You know, I turned up with my black bag, you know, six foot three nearly, uh, weighing about eight stone or something um you know injecting at that point what we used to do my days we used to cut coca-cola cans in half and we used to, used to use the bottom of coca-cola cans to cook up our injections because you didn't get spoons or filters or you know stir of water or anything like that i used to always carry a little squeegee lemon juice about in my pocket because we used to use lemon juice to to break down the heroin and stuff you see if we can only channel that ingenuity <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think I've channeled it a little bit later <laughs> yes. in life. Um, but yeah, I got there having a hat on the train on the way to the treatment centre, and you know, it's like there's celebrities in there, and like we used to sit in these groups of ten people, and this guy used to come down every day, and he's like velvet dinner jacket, you know, to group, and <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> you're talking about taking cocaine in his Mercedes and stuff, you know, and I'm just like what am I doing here? This place is insane, you know. Um, you know, and we'd sit in groups and pray and do all these different things. I just thought, 
you know. And then they were talking to me about being abstinent altogether. Like as soon as I got there, you know, they were like trying to like bombard me with abstinence and like you need to be. Out. I'm like, no, I just need to get off heroin and crack cocaine. I'm as soon as I get off heroin and crack cocaine, I'm going back back out to party, you know. And that that's interesting, Peter, because there is that feeling, isn't there? That if you everyone thinks you just need to be completely off everything. Yeah. But but the fear, I guess, the fears that other people have is if you start taking anything, it might lead you again to heroin. Yeah, and I think that is certainly the case for some people, you know, and a lot of people, once you've got to that point where, you know, your substance use is, is completely out of control, uh, you know, that, that you know, if, if, if you start taking, if you start drinking, you know, and obviously if you get um, drunk, you know, you're going to be in that position where you can't really make rational decisions, which could obviously lead to thinking about or going or actually going to 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 buy other drugs, you know. And um, I think uh, for me, I, I mean, I don't I don't drink or take drugs now, um, and that, that but that was a process for me, you know, over a long long period of time, you know, and a process of having times where, you know, I stopped everything and then I went back. And, you know, for again, when I look at my experience, although I was really drunk when I started taking heroin, I was 17, all the, all the drugs and all the alcohol that I took before that, you know, I did so problematically, you know, so I think for me, it, 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 the best situation is to, to just not take them, you know what I mean, because um, life is so much more enjoyable, you know, and, and if you want to spend, I mean, I had a period of time in Brighton where I, uh, you know, I didn't drink or take drugs at all. I had a route, because uh, I ended up in Brighton after this house in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I went to uh, Brighton for a secondary rehab. Now, this for me was the ideal model. It was not any enforced pathway. It was a house in the middle of the city centre. Um, it was staffed Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. You were responsible for making your own breakfast. You know, the, the six people in the household took turns of making dinner, you know, and you were encouraged to go out and engage with life, you know, do educational stuff, go to the cinema, join a jam, you know, and if you wanted to engage in, in things like... Um, mutual aid recovery, like 12-step fellowships or smart recovery, you could, but they did put limits on it. You know, you it wasn't to become your life, you know, it was to be part of your overall you know, reintegration into society. Um, so, you know, when I left there, I ended up getting a good job, you know, I, I worked my way within a year up to management level, so I've got, a, you know, a good salary coming in i'm living in a nice flat five minutes from brighton brighton beach you know like i'm in my mid-20s at this point or just 26 27 and i'm thinking you know i've been off drugs and alcohol for a while i'm going to have a drink so i did you know and, and what what happened from there is i spent the next 18 months in the pub you know literally <laughs> <laughs> you know i'd, I'd yeah. I'd, I'd leave my work, I'd go to the pub, I'd drink till closing time, you know, on payday I was going in and handing them £400 because I'd be on the tab for two weeks, you know, so um, after that period that's when I, I made the decision to, to, you know, to stop drinking as well and um, like I say, life's better for me when I don't. Yeah, I mean when you describe all of that I guess the thing that strikes me is there is not one solution, is there? You have to find the solution that's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where my eyes have been opened because I am in abstinence-based recovery. Over the last couple of years, you know, I've really done a lot of sort of research and looking at different pathways and and and, and what actually works. Because if you'd asked me two or three years ago, I would have still said that the solution to Scotland's drug death crisis was to get everybody off drugs. And it's clearly not. I mean, we could literally quadruple the amount of people going to residential rehabs. And that is not going to dramatically reduce the, the, the drug death rate in Scotland. Um, all, all we need to do is we need to get people into treatment primarily. I mean, at the moment, the, the one of the most startling statistics is that it's estimated that only 40% or less of people with problematic substance use in Scotland are in, for, in any form of treatment. So, you know, if you compare that to the rest of the UK, it's estimated that 60% are roughly are in, in, in some form of treatment in England and England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Do you think people want, I mean, people need to want to also either get off drugs or manage their drug use better. I mean, how do you persuade people that are involved in chaotic drug use that there might be a different way to do things? Well, I think you you know the, the the best way is to give people enough medication that they don't feel that they've got heart you know they need to have to take other drugs on top you know and that's where we've completely failed we've got this just say no attitude uh, in 2010 well Nicola Sturgeon was actually the health minister you know we introduced this just say no type policy you know the road to recovery it was it was called. Um, not long after that or around that same same sort of time we we started implementing um this just say no we won't we will not prescribe benzodiazepines approach you know and we don't we still don't do that to do until today and um, that created the illicit market for benzodiazepines because people were getting prescribed them all the time and then all of a sudden there were prescriptions were removed and they weren't given again. And then what we also did, Mandy, this is absolutely insane, is we mixed another drug into the market. So instead of prescribing benzodiazepines, we removed those and we started prescribing pregabapentoids. You know, and you can see that in the drug-related death statistics, you know, there was there was no street benzos detected, tizolam primarily, which is the, the main ingredient in street benzos. You know, there was none of that getting detected in 2010, 2011, and then all of a sudden, by the time we get to, you know, 2018, 2019, you're getting 800 plus deaths a year directly linked to a street benzodiazepine and 400 plus deaths a year uh, with a pregabapentoid also detected. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the problems is for politicians, they're always looking for the one solution that's almost like that's the totemic policy that we put in place that solved the problem. Yeah. Um, and what you're saying is there's probably a whole range of issues and policies and approaches that we need to take. Well, I kind of, uh, but I think that that's also this typical party, sort of politician, you know, line that we like to hear across the board from all politicians is that oh there's not one single solution and there's no magic wand and you know Joe Fitzpatrick one Joe Fitzpatrick's favorite was there's no silver bullet yeah. um, that, that was his mantra it was the UK government's fault and there's no silver bullet for the two years that he, he completely failed to do his job um 
but but there is man you know like com, coming from a, a layman's point of view there is a single solution there's an integrated health approach you know that's all we need that's how other countries have dealt with it but we what we seem to do is go for one particular thing move money and then you know so while everybody might accept that you need a multi system approach if you like that isn't what's on the ground yeah it's not we we've 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 just completely failed you know we've completely failed i mean our system is so broken here um you know i, I know i'm sure you you know i, I met with nicholas sturgeon on the 7th of of uh, january this year now <clears throat> more or less everything that i said to her she she then went on to announce on the 20th of january has has been implemented um however one of the things that i urged and i stressed is that right now our point of contact is absolutely broken and that needs to change but yes so what i was saying is that the point of contact is, is broken here if i've got a heroin problem in birmingham i go to change go live they'll assess me and they prescribe if i've got a heroin problem here in edinburgh if I go to Change Grow Live, same organisation, they'll assess me, but they can't prescribe to me. They've got to send me to the NHS for another appointment. And that's where our system is so broken, you know, because it's the, the window of opportunity when somebody asks for help. The NHS control all the prescribing up here. They're very risk averse, and it also adds in another step. Now, when same-day prescribing, one of the things that Nicholas Sturgeon mentioned, when, when we talk about same-day prescribing, some areas in Scotland will report, yes, we are prescribing on the same day. It's absolutely false reporting because what they're reporting is the day that the person turns up to them for help or turns up to the NHS. They've most likely already waited two weeks and spoke to the third sector organisation or, or potentially on multiple of occasions before they get to that point of getting a prescription. Mm. So, I mean, I guess what you, you're describing again is why you in the end set up the the van um and it kind of it reminded me of um a good friend of mine roy robertson the doctor in um, edinburgh that was basically been working with people with drug problems since the early 80s and he in the end just decided he had to do things so he was giving out needles at a time when you weren't meant to be giving out needles um and I guess that's it's desperation that leads you to where you got to. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suppose when uh, Dr. Roy Robertson was around, one of the things that was happening back then was that we had, um, you know, like drug user activist groups in Scotland. So we had uh, people um, coming together who were drug users who were actually sharing out equipment with each other. You know, who were getting a hold of the equipment and distributing it. Um, we don't have that in Scotland now. For one reason or another, this move towards just saying no um, criminalisation that we've seen in the, in the 90s and uh, certainly right up to you know most recent years has pushed people into the background. It's made people scared to step up and come forward and actually start these types of facilities. So that's why I decided that I had to go ahead and do something because these facilities are proven throughout the world now. You know, the evidence is, is clear and concise that they, 
you know, they keep people alive, they help support people into treatment services, you know, those that are most marginalised in our communities, though, you know, the people who are injecting drugs in alleyways, you know, they stop bloodborne viruses, they reduce discarded equipment, they reduce ambulance call-outs, you know, they, they, if they get people into drug treatment services, they actually reduce illicit drug use as well, which, you know, saves the, team, the, the police time and money. So, um, the, 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 to, to be staying in all this internationally recognised evidence in the face and not actually be getting these facilities up and running is, is paramount to, you know, being complicit and allowing people to die. It showed there was a, a piece in um, a, a feature I read about you where it talked about the fact that one of the largest drug uh, needle exchange schemes was sitting in the corner of Glasgow and people were then getting their needles and going round into an alleyway and injecting. Yeah. And you thought that that was just complete madness, which is why you put the, the van there where people could come and inject safely. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I did some uh, uh, injecting in Glasgow City Centre many years ago, you know, and, and the, the areas that I was injecting and people are still injecting in those same conditions, you know, the uh, right next to the, the the busiest needle exchange, literally yards from picking up their needles, they go straight into a rat infested alleyway covered in feces and urine to inject drugs. So that was the reason that we parked the van centrally there in the city centre, um, just because that's where it's going on. You know, these facilities need to be located where people are currently publicly injected. What we've proven with our pilot scheme is that. Um, people are not travelling. You know, it's the same people that regularly use our service day after day, every, every day that we're out. There's people publicly injecting two or three miles from where we, we are parked. Those people are not walking two miles to come and inject in our facility. There's a thing for me that I think you you go through all the experiences that you've described and you're, you're clean and you've got a good job. It would have... I don't, I, don't mind I don't have any official employment. No, no, I know that now, but it's, it feels almost counterintuitive to me that you then get involved in people that are abusing drugs. Well, I wouldn't have done this, uh, you know, unless there was no other option I could see. Um, about four, four, I've only been working with people with alcohol and drug problems for about four years now. Um, you know, I was a stay-at-home dad for a year in 2015, and after being a stay-at-home dad for a year, I decided to change careers, so I got a job locally here in Falkirk in the Fourth Valley area, um, you know, and, and within, you know, I think the, the, when I started working, the 2017 drug death statistics had just came out and it was like 864 people and everybody thought this is absolutely shocking, you know, we've got the highest drug death rate in the EU, then um, 2018 came out, uh, it was like, uh, sorry, 2016 had just came out, it was 864, 2017 it had went up to 934, and by the time we got to 2018, it jumped to 1,187, you know, in, in the two years that I've been involved at that point, and seeing these stats come out, I just couldn't fathom how people could allow this to happen, and then when I, I, you know, when I first got involved politically, I went to Holyrood and I went to a roundtable event organised by Monica Lennon, where Joe Fitzpatrick was at that, and he, he had just announced the, the makeup of the Drug Death Task Force, and 
I pointed finger at him. I said, you should feel ashamed. You've just picked a 23-person drug death task force with one person with any experience of drug use or drug use on it. I mean, if this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and we were picking a, a, a task force to look at development of women's rights or the gender pay gap or whatever, you know, and, and, and you picked a, a task force with 22 ma males on it and one female, what, what, would, what would people be saying, you know? And not only that, I mean, I've got nothing against the person. I know, I know the person personally, but the person who was chosen on that task force didn't have any direct experience of trying to access the services that you know that the people who are really struggling are trying to access, or any direct experience of, of intravenous heroin use or taking street benzodiazepines. You know, they didn't have experience of the drugs that are primarily linked to killing people. So I thought it was really uh, farcical. And ever since that day, he he. He didn't speak to me. Joe Fitzpatrick literally <laughs> did not speak to me. He he arranged a meeting. You see, you're quarrelsome and you should mature. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. <laughs> and he he arranged a meeting with me and then it was set up for two weeks, this meeting. And the day before the meeting, he got his secretary to email saying that unfortunately he wouldn't be able to meet with me. And that was due to the ongoing uh, um, charge, you know, the ongoing alleged um obstruction which at that point wasn't a live um charge in, you in mean the the charge about the having the safe consumption yes right? yeah, yeah yeah so um the police came along tried to intervene um by getting into the van and searching some clearly homeless drug users um a 23 year old a 27 year old and then a, a, a young female as well which i can't remember her age now but she was also under 30 and um allegedly i walked the van and didn't let them in and uh, they charged me with an obstruction under 23a of the misuse of drugs act which was a you know a, a silly charge to begin with i mean if the police were going to intervene we were always wanting them to intervene on section 8 of the misuse of drugs act which specifically talks about premises being used for consumption of substances but what it doesn't talk about is uh, substances like heroin or cocaine talks about opium being prepared to be smoked or cannabis to be prepared to be smoked and that's why I firmly believe that we're not doing anything illegal because the misuse of drugs act is so outdated it doesn't cover these facilities. It's always a danger thinking that someone that's used drugs doesn't know the legislation. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just on, on, on that particular I mean because this has become uh, an issue where Nicola Sturgeon can say oh well you know Westminster has the powers to give us um, you know powers around setting up safe consumption rooms or legalizing certain drugs. I mean you are not a politician at this point and you decided to set up a safe consumption room. Do you not think a government, a devolved government, should just have done it? Yeah, I think they've been uh, complacent. You know, I think they, in 2000... Or frightened. Frightened, but it's just not been a big enough um, concern for them as well. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, they cut the budgets in 2016. I mean, that, that just goes to show that it was not an issue for them. Remember that was following a record year for drug drug deaths. You know, we're not saying, you know, we had a really low 
drug death rate, you know, so we didn't think as much money was needed to, to support people not to die. Uh, we've had a, two consecutive years of record drug deaths. We're going to cut budgets in 2016. So, of course, it's just not been. And then in 2016, there was all the newspaper reports that Glasgow's going to get, you know, a DCR. Remember that Glasgow's got the largest uh, and still uncontrolled HIV outbreak that the UK has seen in the last 30 years in Glasgow right now. So that was the reason that a DCR was originally spoken about, because, of course, people get clean equipment. They're, they're not sharing equipment. You know, it could have helped um, curtail the, the HIV outbreak. And then in 2018, there's further press stories out there saying the green light's been given. Now, we've seen that the UK government most recently have taken the, the, the Scottish Parliament to court in regards to the children's rights legislation to, to enshrine children's rights into, into law. Um, they could do the same, and they could have done the same with, um, you know, the, the the taking legislation through the Scottish Parliament for a, a drug consumption facility. But the, the, it's never been. A, I mean, when it comes to defending children's rights and defending drug users, it's, of course, once it's more popularly with the public vote than the other, um, and, and people like we've spoke about this already on this call, and you know, like there's not been a concern for. Um, any any of the the, the parties uh, that uh, that much because people who are, are are drug users tend to come from these really socially economic deprived backgrounds. You know the people who are dying and um, they're not registered to vote and. You know, the, the, it's not been seen as a win in the media either, because even up until just a couple of years ago, you know, you're forced by certain aspects of the media are all about, um, you know, fictions and junkies and stuff like that. Do you, I'm conscious now of our time, Peter, we could probably talk about this forever, but do you think you've saved lives with the van? Yeah, I mean, certainly we've intervened in seven, seven overdoses, um, six, six people, the same person twice on one occasion, same person two times. Um, so, I mean, certainly there's six people who, who uh, could be dead today if we weren't there. You know, we're talking about a limited amount of service hours. We originally were only out one day a week, five hours a week. You know, we've now moved that up. Uh, I've been doing extra days and stuff. But, I mean, if this service was open and it was located in the right area in Glasgow and it was there seven days a week, you know, and, it, and, it, and it, I mean, what we see now is a capacity issue. You know, like we've often got queues outside. We can only have three or four people, maximum four, in the van at any one time. Um, so we've got maybe three in and then three waiting to get in and then sometimes even another three at the back of them. Um, if we had a, 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 an area in Glasgow with maybe 30 injecting booths in it, it would be saving multiple lives. It, it would also be stopping this HIV outbreak, you know, it'd be reducing um, infections. We see lots of infections from the people who use the service, and those infections come from you know, injecting in really squalid conditions. They also come from sometimes having to rush when they're in the alleyways, you know, and they're scared that the police walk through or a member of the public walks past, so they rush and they miss their injection and that creates an abscess. And then people end up in hospital. <clears throat> so, of course, we've saved lives. We've, we've supported people to reduce the harm. You know, we've seen people who, especially in the winter months, who were injecting in their groin because they were outside, they couldn't get 
a vein in their arm, um, come into the back of the van, the van's nice or it's well lit. You know, so they went from injecting in their groin to injecting in their arm, and that's one of the most, most basic um, bits of harm reduction for an injecting drug user. It feels like uh, if your life had almost started as a kind of um, all the ill effects of Thatcherism, to become a politician at the end of it feels like you're you're kind of rounding the circle, I suppose. I suppose in some ways, and I, you know what, I've got no illusions um, about being able to uh, achieving a, a win in my first run for the Scottish Parliament. But what uh, I hope to achieve is I hope to achieve a, a, a very good percentage share of the vote. You know, uh, again, I don't do things by halves. You know, I've got my leaflets ready to drop at the Royal Mail, so 38,700 leaflets will be delivered to every single household and the voters' household in, in the Falkirk East area via the Royal Mail drop-off service. I've also got another 50,000 leaflets, which um, are trifold leaflets, which are, my family, my friends and a bunch of students are helping me get out actually physically through the doors. Um, you know, and, I, I, and my campaign is, is, is getting well followed. You know, I've just had the uh, the Guardian up following my, my election campaign for a couple of days there. They're doing a, a 10 minute video piece on it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, as I say, I can get a decent performance. And what that would lead to next is uh, potentially looking at the Falkirk Council elections in 2022. Good. Peter, other dangers, though. I mean, does your wife actually worry and you worry about yourself that you get thrown into this and a disappointment could lead to? You going back to any kind of drug use? Oh, I mean, it's what it is, man. Man, do you know we do, we uh, we're quite stable as a family, you know. And I think if anything like that ever happened, you know, I'd be able to 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 cope with it anyway. You know, it's just. But are you conscious of that that you do manage yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I have good good people around me, you know, not just in terms of my, my family, um, but also friends as well. You know, I've got good friends around me who I can rely on and who are there for me. Um, you know, so I think it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, if you if you come from that level of problematic substances, you know, you're all, there's always going to be some sort of concerns in some way there, but I, I don't... Uh, you can't live your life like that, can you, in terms of thinking about, you know, what if. What might Yeah, happen. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at my children now, you know, my, my oldest will be 10 on the 1st of June and my youngest will be 6 on the 4th of June. And, uh, you know, I, I think the last thing I would want to do is, uh, you know, sort of give all that up, you know. Like, um, yeah. Is your mum still alive, Peter? Yeah, yeah, and we we have a a, 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 you know a good relationship with my mum, and you know my my dad and my my stepmom and my mum and my stepdad are both remarried. They're both with the people that they were meant to be with now. <laughs> you know, they clearly weren't they're like chalk and cheese the two of them, you know, and like there was no wonder they were always fighting, you know, like complete polar opposites of each other. Um, how do they how do they feel about you talking about your upbringing and what might, you know, what clearly might have seeded some of the issues? Well, I think they recognise that, that, that themselves, you know, the, the, 
the, the upbringing was very unstable and, you know, there was, it was a different age. And, you know, I think what, what I see is that, you know, as grandparents, they, they, they try and make up for that now, you know, like as grandparents. And, uh, you know, I think we all sort of look back and think, oh, well, we could have done things differently. That's part of life, isn't it? Um, you know, my dad often as well, he he, he done a little interview for The Guardian the other day, you know, and, um, when they were filming us on the campaign stuff, and uh, he was like, oh, you know, talking about if I, any parts I had to play and stuff, and I'm just thinking, you know, there, there, there's, no, there's no blame, there's no... Um, you know, ill, Ill feeling there anymore. It's just like that was how it was. You know, we've moved on. Let's, you know, let's enjoy the grandkids and let's um, make sure that that they have the best that they can get in terms of the relationships now. And there might be a different headline this time. Instead of junkie son steals from father. Yeah. You win an election. Well, you, you you never know and anything is possible. And you know, those headlines have already changed. I mean, it was in the folk of Carol that headline and then more or less twenty five years fast forward twenty five years and the headline in the folk of Carol is, you know, my distant man meets with first minister to, you know, <laughs> implement policy reform or something, drug policy reform, you know, so those headlines have changed dramatically, you know, over the years and um, it's good, you know, I think one of the, the best things about all of this is how interested my oldest son has become in it all, um, you know, like I'm, ha I'm already having those conversations about what I do, you know, in terms of what I do to help and support people um, who've, who've got problems with alcohol and drugs and stuff and he's been came recently very interested, you know, he's been out helping granddad post flyers and he's been out helping me post flyers and, and talking about, uh, you know, reasons why, they, why people should vote for me, you know, I'm honest, I'm, I think he said to the Guardian the other day, like, he just came running out of granddad's house and he was like, right up to the camera uh, and, and the, the reporter says, you know, do you know about your dad and you're running for election? He's like, yeah, this is the three reasons why people should vote for him. He's honest, reliable, and he helps people with problems. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> campaign video, there you go, Mark, from my campaign manager. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.